Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The scriptures teach, both Old and New Testament, that the Messiah is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so we have the interesting thing here. God is being addressed, but God has a God. How how is that? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, verse 4, in a message titled, Beware of Drifting. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we're studying Hebrews. Give you just a a little bit of a reminder of the background of this epistle. This letter to the Hebrews was written originally to Jews who had happily put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, but because things had not turned out the way they had expected, they were considering a return to the comfort and security of Judaism. So there was a strong pull back toward that which was familiar. And so this epistle was written to show them, primarily to show them the supremacy of Christ over all things associated with Judaism and with the, the previous covenant, and to warn them of the dire consequences of turning away from their trust in Christ. And here in the epistle, the author makes it clear that to turn away from Christ and to go back to Judaism is nothing short of departing from a relationship with the living God, that in doing this, they would forfeit the atonement provided through the cross, and ultimately, they would incur the wrath of God. And so the epistle begins with a reminder that God's final word to man uh, has come to us in his son, through his son, and that the son, Jesus, he is no less than God himself. Not, of course, God the Father, but he is God the Son. And as we saw in our previous study, he is the Father's appointed heir. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the exact image of his person. And so up until this point, we've covered the first three verses, and we're going to pick up in verse four. But here, beginning in verse four, the author starts to build his case for the superiority of the Son to all that has proceeded. So everything that the Jews have ever known, the the author wants them to understand that Christ is superior to all of these things. And he begins here in in this argument that's going to go on through much of the rest of the epistle. uh, He begins here with the angels. And the importance of angels in the mind of these Hebrew believers was primarily in connection with their 
part in administrating the law. So, so for these Jewish believers, the big thing is the law. The whole Mosaic system, which consisted of a temple and a sacrificial system and a priesthood and all of these various feast days. And, and th- this was, you know, it's a, it's a religion and a culture. It's all merged together. And now they're feeling excluded from that. They're, they're being isolated. So they're, they're being tempted to go back to this. And again, the author is wanting them to see that there's nothing to go back to. That, that's over. God is uh, vacated. He's, he has abandoned that. He's no longer part of that system. He has now come and brought this, this new and, and fulfilling uh, of all of those things that were symbolized there. He fulfilled them through his son. But it wasn't so much that the Jews were necessarily worshiping angels, but they, they saw the angels in connection to the giving of the law. Although it's not explicitly stated in the Old Testament that the angels were the, were the ones who um, distributed the law to Moses, obviously that was the case because the New Testament refers to it on two occasions. Uh, Stephen says it once in Acts 7, and Paul says it in uh, Galatians chapter 3. So even though the author addresses the angels first, he's really aiming to show the supremacy of Christ over the entire system, over the entire mosaic system. So the angels and the author is here clearly, he's drawing as, uh, as we've seen already, he's drawing deeply from the Old Testament. He's going back to the scriptures, the very sources that they would look to for their understanding. He's going back to those things and he's showing them that his claim that uh, of the superiority of the son over the angels and all uh, the previous system, he says, you know, in a sense, he's saying, look, this claim is, it's rooted in your scriptures. This is what the scriptures themselves teach. And so he does this, uh, this comparison of Christ with the angels. Now, since we're on the subject of angels, let's just take a quick moment and talk about angels. The word angel means messenger. Both the Hebrew word that we translate angel and the Greek word, they, they both mean, they, they simply mean messenger. So the, the term, of course, designates their essential function. So their, their essential function, the function of angels, is to, as God's messengers, they bring God's message. And there are at least four specific functions that we see in the scriptures concerning angels. Uh, Number one, we see that angels, they actually praise and they worship God. Uh, We find different passages in the scripture to support that. In the book of Job, at the creation, the laying of the foundation of the world, it says that all of the sons of God, which is a reference to the angels there, all of the sons of God, they shouted for joy. So they were there Uh, proclaiming their worship to God as God was creating uh, the universe. Uh, We read in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke at the birth of Jesus. You remember there appeared an angel speaking to the the shepherds, and then there was a multitude of heavenly hosts, and they were singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So they're expressing worship to God. They're giving him glory. So that's one of the things they do. Secondly, angels communicate God's message to man. 
if again, if you go back in um, the Old Testament, for example, the, the prophetic message, say, that, that came to Daniel, angels brought those uh, prophetic messages to Daniel. We come to the New Testament, we find a very similar thing with the Apostle John, the book of Revelation. Much of that was brought to him and revealed to him through the work of angels. Remember, it was the angel Gabriel who announced the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And so this is part of what the angels do. They bring uh, God's message to man. They also minister to believers. So angels minister. Now, of course, angels are uh, invisible, but there are times we see in scripture that they take on human form. And part of their duty is to minister to believers. Uh, We read in Psalm 91 that he, speaking of God, shall give his angels charge over you and they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. So, you know, we we talk sometimes about uh, a guardian angel. There's nowhere in scripture that necessarily tells us that the guardian angels are a reality, but there's a passage where Jesus refers to little children and then he refers to their angel who always behold the the face of my father. So from that statement, people have come up with the idea that there is a a guardian angel assigned to each one of us. Um, That might be true. We don't know for sure. There's probably for some people more than one assigned. Uh, (laughs) Some people, I don't know that one would be sufficient, but... um, But then we're told here in Hebrews 1.14 that they are ministering spirits who are sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. So this is what they do. They they minister to us on God's behalf. They they help us in ways that most of the time I think we're, we're probably not even aware of. And then fourthly, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgment, and they are greatly involved in the activity surrounding the second coming of Christ. And so Jesus told us that at the end, uh, the angels would gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Uh, he said that the angels would be the ones who would uh, separate the, um, the righteous from the wicked and so forth. So these are some of the things that we see that angels are doing, that they are responsible for. And as we think about angels, angels are certainly amazing beings. They are certainly powerful beings. I think of that uh, incident recorded back in the Old Testament where the, uh, the army of the Assyrians had come up to, to conquer Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel. And in one night, an angel, it says, went through the camp of the Assyrians and slew 185,000 men. So angels are extremely powerful. Remember, there was that one occasion where when, when Jesus was being arrested and Peter pulled out his sword to protect him, Jesus said, you know, Peter, put away your sword. He said, don't you think that I could uh, call upon my father and he would send uh, 12 legions of angels? So angels are powerful. Angels can be extremely destructive if they need to be. So they are definitely amazing beings, but this is the author's point in what he's talking about here in the verses that we read. 
even though they are as amazing as they are, the gulf between Christ and the angels is the gulf between the creature and the creator. Angels are created beings just like we are. Christ is the creator. He's not a created being. He is uh, the creator. Now, some uh, cultic groups try to put Jesus in the category of an angel. They say, well, you know, he's Michael the archangel. It's so interesting. You find that, you know, with groups of people that come up with these ideas, you, you kind of sometimes wondered, well, did they ever read the first chapter of Hebrews? Because this is a, a good refutation of their whole theology because the point of the first chapter of Hebrews is that Christ isn't an angel, that he is superior to angels, that he is actually no one less than God the Son. And so in verses 4 through 14, the verses that we read, what the author does here is he goes back to the Old Testament, and, and through the Old Testament, he shows the teaching of the superiority of Christ to the angels. And in all of these Old Testament passages that he uses, he shows that Christ is the Lord. And every time he refers to the angels, again, quoting from the Old Testament as well, it's clear that the angels are the servants of the Lord. Christ is the Lord. They are the servants of the Lord. And so the author here, he quotes from the Psalms almost exclusively, with one exception. He also quotes from, from 1 Samuel chapter 7. But let's just look real quickly at, at the quotations here. So first of all, in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting from the second psalm there. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's quoting from 1 Samuel chapter 7 there. But then he goes on, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. So you see, he's showing, no, the, the son is superior to the angels. Look, the angels worship him. They wouldn't be worshiping him if he was like them or, or if he was you know, less than them. But the angels of God worship him. This is probably quotation from the 97th Psalm. Probably some say it might be a, a quote from Deuteronomy as well. Just a, a little point for anybody who's interested in this little technicality. The, the passages here being quoted are quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32, uh, 43 says something similar to what verse 7 says here. Let all the angels of God worship him. But the 97th Psalm says something similar as well. So probably the 97th Psalm. But then he quotes again, he says in verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Here he's quoting from the 104th Psalm. But then in verses 8 and 9, he quotes from Psalm 45. And notice what he says. He says, this is the author, he says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the author here says that the psalmist, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, is speaking to the Son. And that 45th Psalm, if you take the time to read over that today, you'll find that the, 
the verses here are pulled right out of that uh, 45th Psalm. And that 45th Psalm is a psalm of, of praise to the, the king. It's a song of, um, of worship to the, the Messiah king, the Davidic king. And notice what it says. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see, clearly, the scriptures teach, both Old and New Testament, that the Messiah is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so we have the interesting thing here. God is being addressed, but God has a God. How, how is that? Well, again, we're looking here at the, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is being addressed to the Son. And then the reference to your God has anointed you. That would be a reference back to the Father. And one of the big uh, still, you know, 2,000 years later, one of the big stumbling blocks for the Jews is the idea uh, that Jesus is God or, or the idea of a trinity, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, you know, the thing to me that's so fascinating is even though the New Testament brings this out very clearly, you can argue the case so powerfully from the Old Testament itself. And even the Jews themselves, they... They, they come so close because even in their rabbinical literature, even in the writing of the scholars, they recognize that the Messiah is, you know, in some way, he's a divine being. They, they get that. They, they can't, it's inescapable. <laughs> they, they really can't get around it. But then they just can't, they can't go all the way to embrace the idea that there was a plurality within the divine nature rather than just a singularity. And it's just a, like a blindness on their mind. So, uh, you know, they, they'll look at these passages and say, yeah, well, you know, it seems like that's what it's saying, but it, it just can't be that way. Just because we just, we, you know, we just refuse to see it like that. So here in, in Hebrews, again, he's arguing, of course, his case before Jewish believers, but he's doing so from their own biblical text, showing them, look, this this is what your scripture, this is, of course, in his case, probably would have been our scripture said. So he quotes from the 45th Psalm, clearly stating the deity of Christ. But then verse 10 is even more amazing. This is a, a quotation from the 102nd Psalm. But now he identifies Jesus with Yahweh. And so quoting the, the 102nd Psalm, he says, and you, Lord, or it's the Hebrew word here, Yahweh. It's the, it's the name for God. And obviously the author here is applying this passage to Jesus, who he's already said earlier uh, that he is the creator of all things. But look at what he says here again. He says, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. So here the author is drawing from the psalm. He's saying that this psalm is speaking of Jesus. 
He's referring to him as Yahweh. And once again, he's showing that in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. He's the creator. So his whole argument, again, is to show that Christ is superior to all that we have previously known. He's superior to the angels. And so there in verse 14, the angels, or verse 13, or to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? The answer is none. He never said that to an angel. He said that to his son. That's a quote from Psalm 110. So all of these quotations from their scriptures, primarily from the Psalms, and then he tells us regarding the angels, the angels are ministering spirits. The angels are servants. Christ is the Lord. The angels are the servants. Now, we are in the the process of an argument here. And so we have to follow the argument through to its uh, conclusion, at least when he comes to this, this first major point. And so that takes us now into the second chapter. The chapter distinctions sometimes aren't helpful because if we just stop at the chapter end, we lose the flow of the thought, but he's continuing on. So we must continue on as well. And so he says this, therefore, since Christ is the Lord and the angels are his servants, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the author is you, you see what he's doing here. He's arguing from the less to the greater. So if the angels who are clearly inferior to Christ, if the message that was uh, communicated through them was binding, if the message that was communicated to them was revolted against and brought a, sh- a sure judgment uh, upon that revolt, if that was the case with these, the message that came through these inferior messengers, His point is, how much more is that the case with the message that has come through the Son? And so he urges them, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. So as I pointed out from the beginning of our teaching here in Hebrews, this epistle is one, it's it's very much a warning against turning away from the Lord. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is 
taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens, and we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, or you're not sure about God's love for you. This book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hebrews. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.